This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And full disclosure, ladies and gentlemen who are listening to this, neither Sam nor myself are morning people. And yet, as we record this, it is morning. <laughs> so in our schedule, as we were looking when we could get together to record this podcast, it was just early Wednesday. It was the only thing that we could do. And uh, so you're forewarned. If, if all of a sudden both of us trail off into nothingness. Yeah. Delirious that, and cranky. and That's what you get. Yeah, <laughs> That's early morning podcast recording. But uh, hey, and somebody got a text. Didn't think about that. <laughs> You know, I'm muting my phone even now because <laughs> <laughs> you're sweating. <laughs> it's funny because I normally, this is part of my routine where I go through and put everything in do not disturb mode before we start recording, which is why I miss the texts that people then send me afterwards. And I didn't do any of that this morning. So, <laughs> huh. so there's no telling what will come through here. Let me, there we go with that and that. So now there shouldn't be anything that goes bing or bong here. So having completed our little tour of the early part of Genesis, and, it, you know, there were some really good episodes in there. If you've ever thought to yourself that you wanted to hear talking about the creation story and what the different uh, possible understandings of that are, or you've ever read something about Noah and the Ark and the Great Flood, and you thought, that's there's weird things about that story, and who are these Nephilim? Um, <laughs> you, if you've thought about the Tower of Babel, and you're like, I kind of know what that's about, but, you know... Please, I encourage you to go back and get the last, uh, what was it, six weeks now? Was it six episodes I think we did? This sounds good to me. I think it's six episodes that we did on the early parts of Genesis. And so go back and listen to those. Uh, there were some interesting podcasts. I, I enjoyed doing them. But I could, do, I could do Genesis in perpetuity. I love Genesis. I think we did a pretty good job of sort of bringing in the, the why, maybe, as much as the what. And that was really uh, the fun part of that, was to talk mm-hmm. about why these things were happening. Because that's um, – everybody kind of knows what. Yeah, Adam and Eve, and there was a snake, and there was an apple, and probably wasn't <laughs> an apple, and some kind of fruit. And But if you start talking about the, the meaning of it and the why these things happened, I think that it becomes interesting. And that's, to yep. some extent, what we hope to do here as we start talking about the prophet Jonah and the book of Jonah. You know, one of the stories, Sam, that uh, is – I talked about how Noah and the Ark is sort of an iconic story in American folklore. It's not just a Bible story, but kind of every American kid grows up knowing about Noah and the Ark. They've seen – they just know what it is. Mm -hmm. And they know Adam and Eve and the apple, which we know probably wasn't really an apple. But the point is you got Adam and Eve and a piece of fruit, and there's a snake involved. And the other one is Jonah and the big fish. I mean, I feel like that's a, you know, Jonah and the whale. Everybody knows that story. Yeah. It's, it's one of those iconic stories from the Bible. And I think that it's iconic because people look at it and go, nah, that didn't happen. <laughs> it's just absolutely like this fantastic story that sounds absurd to everybody. So it makes a great children's story. I mean, Veggie Tales, when they went to make their feature film, they went to Jonah because this is one of the iconic stories of the Bible that if you don't have faith in a supernatural God that can defy you know, the boundaries of, of what we consider as reasonable, this story is going to be hard for you to grab hold of. You have to come to this with a belief that God can do what he wants. And to the people that think, well, the first question I have is, why would God do all of this? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. You know, there's a lot of things that are going on here. Uh, There's a lot of parts to this story that have, I think, really great Mm -hmm. touchstones to what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. And it gets back to that same thing that we were talking about in Genesis, is that when you see the why behind, because if it's just, you know, a man being swallowed by a fish, you go, that doesn't make sense. Why would God do that? It just sounds absurd. But when you get to the why of, of how God put this together, 
um, and how prophetic it is and how meaningful it is to us, then you see why God would do something this absurd. He's he's preaching a message to us. He's giving us uh, the gospel. Now, would it be appropriate to kind of give people to set the stage here a little bit to talk about who Jonah was and about the world of Jonah and who the and who the Nin, you know who what Nineveh was and who the Assyrians were? Can we kind of give people an idea of what's going on here as we come into the story? Yeah. So, so Jonah. If you open your Bible to the section of the prophets, you have five major prophets, um, and that would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Um, and the four major prophets, there's five major prophetic books. The other one is Lamentations, which Jeremiah wrote. Then you have 12 minor prophets. Now, and what's the difference between a major and a minor? One of them is major. <laughs> <laughs> is it just size? or is it's You not know a- what? I think so. I think okay. it is. I think it is size um, because Jonah is going to be a very, very powerful major book that's quoted in the New Testament. The same you see with Micah. But so there's twelve minor prophets, and what you see in the minor prophets is uh, every bit as relevant as the major ones, except the major ones are longer. Okay. Um, but Jonah is his distinction in in all of this is he's the earliest one we believe. Okay. So if if you were to take you know the four of the major prophets and the twelve of the minor prophets, Jonah comes first. And so this is he's writing at a time where, you know, if you went back to a thousand BC, and BC works backwards because you're now counting backwards from Jesus, but a thousand years before Jesus, you had King Solomon who united this massive kingdom, um, it had all the twelve tribes, and then, you know, time goes and the tribes split and you get the northern kingdom of Israel, which is ten tribes, mm-hmm. and the southern kingdom of Judah. They split. They kind of have a civil war in the tribes of Israel in a sense. And so Jonah is a prophet to the northern ten tribes of Israel, which are notoriously even more wicked than Judah, which is also typically wicked. <laughs> Both of them are terrible. And Jonah's the first prophet that emerges out of uh, Israel, and he is God is going to send him to their biggest geopolitical threat in the region of that time, which is the Assyrian Empire. Um, now, the Assyrians really were a bloodthirsty people. As I, as I recall, everything that I know about the Assyrians, it was you did not want the Assyrians coming in and conquering your country. No. That was bad. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, the Assyrians are known, like historians will tell you that the Assyrians are the first terroristic regime in world history. Like they were – that's what they prided themselves on. When they came to conquer your town, they didn't just take your land. They wanted you to suffer in the most horrendous, awful ways so that everybody would be absolutely in terror of them and people would lay down. They would surrender before the army ever got there because if the Assyrians conquered your town – you know, they they prided themselves on torturing you before they killed you, cutting off your arms and cutting off your feet. And, you know, one story I remember reading, which is particularly shocking, was going into a town with pregnant women, cutting open their stomachs and killing their babies in front of them as they watched the women bleed to death. Mm-hmm. Um, they, were, they were horrendous. I mean, you read stories. And one of the things is if you go in, in archaeology as they're uncovering all of these ancient Assyrian cities – we have their artwork, and their artwork boasts of this. You know, they all the artwork shows all their torture and the, the heads that are put on spikes that were scattered all throughout their empire so that when you went through, you'd see these skulls just stacked up on these spikes. And the idea was, don't mess with us because we will brutally terrorize you if you stand against us. Yeah. What's what's also interesting, you know, our last episode we were coming off Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Right. And did, wasn't that – isn't that linked to the Assyrians? Absolutely. So Nimrod is going to be the one who founds the city of Nineveh. In Genesis 10 we read that. Um, and he founds all the major cities of Babylon and all the major cities of Assyria. And what happens is you get ancient, the old kingdom of Babylon that ascends. And this is, you know, the kingdom of like Hammurabi days way, way back, 1,700 years before Jesus. And then the Assyrians emerge in the ancient world that's way, way back. 
And then they reemerge. And so this we're living in the times when Jonah comes along. This is the what's called the Neo Assyrian. So it's like the second emergence of the Assyrians. Okay. And they're coming to power. And then after them, you'll have the Neo-Babylonian, where Babylon comes around for another spell. Um, but those two Assyrians are going to be the ones who ultimately conquer the northern tribes of Israel and take every all of them off into exile and kill them. Um, and then Babylon is going to be the one that conquers Jerusalem and destroys it, burns it to the ground, and takes everybody, including some of the major prophets like Jeremiah and Daniel, off into exile. Mm. So do we feel like – because we were talking – you were talking about the fact that Jonah was the first of the prophetic – earliest of the prophetic books written. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that Jonah was was kind of one of the first prophets? He's not the first pro- – like you, the story of Elijah. It's the uh, first. Okay. Elijah would have been – he just didn't write a book. Okay. Um, but Elijah is well before Jonah, okay. um, probably a full century before Jonah. Um, and he, would, he was a prophet. So right. you have Elijah, you have Elisha, but they aren't writing books. Right. When Jonah comes along, uh, the first three prophets, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, they're all coming out of Israel. They're the only prophets that are in the northern kingdom of Israel before it falls. Okay. And the way that these messages are laid out chronologically is really fascinating. It actually gives you a picture of what the problem is that's going to be in Jonah because Jonah looks at his enemies, and the kind of the point of this is Jonah is so self-righteous that he can't stand the thought of God showing mercy to these awful Assyrians. He just can't stand it. So, spoiler alert, that's kind of where this whole book is going. Mm. And so, Jonah, here's the idea. The first prophet that is recorded in the scriptures is saying, I'm so righteous that I can't stand the thought of foreigners receiving the hope of mercy that God would be for them. So I'm going to run away. I'm going to refuse. I'm going to pout at the thought that God loves them. Mm. Then Amos comes along, and it's basic, It's like a shotgun blast of God promising to judge all the nations, <laughs> including Israel and Judah. Mm. So, I mean, you read it, and it's like God's judgment against the Moabites, God's judgment against the Ammonites, God's judgment against Israel. And, I mean, it's just bam, bam, bam. He's laying down the law. And basically, so when you get to Amos, it's like, all right, not only are you not more righteous than the foreign nations, you're every bit as righteous. And so judgment against you and them. And then when you get to Hosea, you're in for a real shock. Um Hosea comes along and God gives it the book starts with God giving the prophet Hosea this really stunning command. He tells his prophet, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And Hosea is like, Excuse me, God? <laughs> like <laughs> what do you, you say, know? Lord? <laughs> <laughs> do you know who I am? I'm your prophet. I'm the righteous one, right? <laughs> and God says to Hosea, yeah, I want you to go and marry a prostitute, and I want you to have children from that prostitute so that when everybody mocks you for what your bride is like, you'll know what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, ooh, ooh, you know, this is because the Lord, who is his bride? We Israel. are. Yeah, we are. Israel. Israel. And we are, right. And so, so the idea is, what, what, is a, what's, what does a prostitute do? You know, a married prostitute has someone at home who's desperate to love her, right? Hosea's desperate to love her, and what does she do? She goes out and sells herself and gives herself away for nothing, like for the cheapest little rewards. And that's what humanity does to God all the time. Like, you know, here you have this God who's like, let me satisfy you. Let me be the one. I'm your, I'm your bridegroom. I want to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And we, like prostitutes, go and give our affections to anything and everything that might satisfy us, even for a moment. Right. And so the the message of Hosea, remember Jonah is, Jonah the prophet of Israel saying, I'm too righteous to go to those foreigners. The next prophet comes along and says, you're all bad, and judgment's coming on all of you. And then you get to Hosea, and God's what the truth that God is laying down in Hosea is, hold on a minute, you're worse than them. They don't have a husband. They don't have a relationship and a covenant sense with God. You do, and you still sell yourself out to the same things that they do. So you're worse than they are. Mm. Um, and it's it's a heavy message. Um, and I think it's one that, you know, we need to hear again today. Uh, 
So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and it says, I want you to go to Nineveh, which because their, e- their evil has come up before me, it says. And Jonah's reaction was to go like the absolute opposite way. I mean, we, we talk about, um, you know, running to the ends of the earth to escape something. Mm-hmm. Jonah was really kind of willing to go to what to him was the the like the other end of the earth. He was going just as far <laughs> away from that as he could. But mm-hmm. I do think that it's interesting, the language being used after this, it's like he kept going down. Jonah mm-hmm. went down. He went down from uh, where he was to... to uh, from Tarshish to mm-hmm. Joppa and then to a boat. He went down into the boat and then eventually would go down. So it's like this down is just like, into the waters. Yeah. yeah, this is like a continual series of the farther that Jonah runs away from God, it feels like he keeps going down. And that yeah. is that's it's a Johnny Cash song. It, he went down, yes. down, down. Yeah. <laughs> but I really found it profound mm-hmm. because the idea that the farther you go from God, the farther down you're going. Yeah, it's like you're falling. It is. It's a it's a falling away. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he went to uh, Tarshish and he went to Joppa and he went onto this boat or found that he went to Joppa rather and mm-hmm. found a boat going to Tarshish, that was like on the other side of the Mediterranean from where he was. Right. So there's two. The the chief theories is that Tarshish is either the main theory is that it's a port city in Spain. Okay. We've kind of lost the certainty of where this is, but the most scholars put this as a port city in Spain mm-hmm. um, because we know that there was a port city in Spain that traveled in metals. And Tarshish, other other places in the Bible, talks about how they traded in metals. Um, but they also believe that it might have been one of the Mediterranean islands. In either case, it is a long, long way to the west. So the idea is Nineveh is to the east, Tarshish is far, far away to the west, and Jonah is saying, uh, I'm getting on a boat and I'm going as far away from these Ninevites as I possibly can. You know, this idea that uh, that from the east came life, you know, that was – if something was mm-hmm. coming from the east, that was the idea of life. And if it was coming – if it was going to the west, that was – you know, that's the opposite of that. Sun rises mm-hmm. in the east, sets in the west. You know, we have this yeah. sort of symbolism. So in another way, too, Jonah was running away from life and running yeah. and the ancient death, you know. And the ancient world and all those ancient cultures, including in the Bible, you know, when it talks about Jesus' return, he comes from the east, there, there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in ancient cultures like in Egypt, one of the fascinating things is if you go to Egypt on the west side of the Nile is where they put all the tombs. You won't find tombs on the east side of the Nile because they associated death with the west where the sun set. And they would build their cities and population centers on the east side of the Nile. Um, even still to this day, burials take place on the west side of the Nile, just mm. out of tradition. But all this, an ancient reader, when they when they hear this, they're aware of these things. You right. know, it's, it, these are cultural truths and norms that when they read it, they're going, "Okay, one's going. He's going west. He's going down. You know, this is death and descent." So, in a way, Jonah is saying, "Look, God, I would rather die." Then, and he'll say then, that later. Then take, yeah, he'll say that later. Then take your message to these mm-hmm. people. And and here's the deal. Like one of the things that's kind of surprising is, you know, if Jonah believed that God would protect him, you know, it's clear that he hates the Ninevites. I mean, the, the story's going to make that clear. And by the way, um, if God came to us and said, go to ISIS, you know, people who delight in torturing and beheading and putting people in cages and drowning mm-hmm. them underwater and doing all those things – you know, or or going to, you know, 1940 Germany and standing in the middle of Berlin and demanding that they repent. You know, imagine yourself. No, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Right. Um, but here, God's what God tells Jonah is, go call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God is not coming to Jonah and saying, hey, I want you to go play nice with your enemies. You know, I want you to go and give them a hug. I want you to – no, he's saying I want you to go call out against them. I want you to go to the Ninevites and I want you to tell them about their evil. I want you to call them to repentance. I want you to tell them how despicable the evil is. And you would think like if Jonah hates them, all right, let's do that. But he doesn't want to do that. Why? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Like you would think, I mean, for the self-righteous, if you tell me, go speak out against my enemies and tell them how evil they are, I have no problem with that. Like the self-righteousness in me is like, all right, let's do it, you you know, you dirtbags. <laughs> There's, you know, I'm. But he knows something about the character of God that you'll find later in the story where he knows what the Lord will do with even a harsh word hmm. um, and the hearts of his enemies. And he doesn't want to give a chance for mercy. As I was looking over the book of Jonah and the story here, one of the things, of course, that I always like to do is to like to look for the meaning in certain words. You know, I enjoy reading what which original word was used for certain things. And a couple things that I found were interesting here um, is that when it calls, uh, he says, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it, for their evil has mm-hmm. come up before me. And the same Hebrew word for evil is also the word for disaster, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was interesting because it's it's a the picture that you have then is it's not just that they're evil, but it's also the fact that they um, they they are a disaster and disaster is about to come upon them. It's like there there's a there's a connection there between evil and disaster one mm-hmm. of the, they go hand in hand and the and jonah the name jonah means dove um which i didn't i didn't know that all the mm-hmm. times i'd ever you know read the story of jonah um and a dove is for us a symbol of peace, peace. right you know we yeah. talk about that and we talked about that in the story of noah and the ark he set the yeah. dove out so you know just kind of the the words being used here it's like god is sending the prophet jonah dove you know peace life to these people who were evil they were a disaster or about to be visited by disaster from god mm-hmm. um and he was really pulling them back you know from the brink one of the things that kind of occurs to me before we really kind of talk about what happened on the boat, because that's kind of what comes up next, but, um, you know, the outcome of all of this, and again, spoiler alert, the outcome of all of this is <laughs> that the, you know, the the people in Nineveh, they, they repent, but it doesn't work out. Eventually, the Assyrians go back to their old ways and mm-hmm. they do bad things to Israel. Um, and And yet, it feels like God's trying to pull them back from the brink here. And I've always wondered when I've thought about this story is, do you believe that God was really offering the Assyrians? Was this like a legitimate offer? Like, if you turn to me now, you can be my people too? Or was this all just some, you know, big illustration from the Old Testament, some example of like, was it about Jonah or was it about the Assyrians, I guess is what I'm asking. And I think the answer to that is is yes. Okay, so both. Um, both yeah, okay. I, you know, I think when when he goes there and they repent in sackcloth and ashes, I think there's a very real sense in which, you know, their ears are open. Okay, you know, they're they're ready to hear. And what happens is the man of God, who should be thrilled about the possibility of revival hitting his biggest enemy and bringing them in and grafting them in as friends and going into the city and discipling them and and telling them what this means and helping them to train up their children he doesn't you know at the end of the story he goes out and pouts as we'll see and what will happen is this it's like the parable of the seeds you know the sower Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he casts the seeds and right. the seeds go down, but they wither because they don't find deep soil. Right. And I think Jonah, in a sense here, kind of contributes to that idea of the rocky soil. You know, you have these seeds that are birthed and they, they shoot up real quick, but he doesn't go in to make sure that they have what they need to survive. And so that faith is going to wither. And within two generations – you know, these Assyrians, the grandchildren of the Assyrians that Jonah is talking to in the story, their grandkids are going to come and kill Jonah's grandkids mm. um, because Jonah was t- too proud. I mean, it yeah. really does make you wonder what would have happened. And and by the way, this story sets up the big divide that was in Jesus' day because when the Assyrians come through and they conquer all the land of Galilee, they conquer all the land of Samaria – they begin interbreeding with the Jews that were there to try to wipe out their legacy, and their descendants are going to be called Samaritans. 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 And what happens? The Jews of the South hate the Samaritans because of their heritage with the Assyrians, with the pagans. And so Jesus is still dealing with the fallout of Jonah's failure (laughs) 800 years later. (laughs) 
Wow. So, yeah, I mean, our actions, I mean, this is one example. Our actions, our failure to love, have generational consequences. I mean, 800 years later, Jesus is picking up the pieces of Jonah's failure. So Jonah gets on a boat and starts to cross the Mediterranean toward the, you know, running as far away as possible. And it says that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a, a mighty tempest on the sea and the ship threatened to break up and uh, the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to their own God. Right. I, w- I want to stop for a moment there. What do you hear after coming through Genesis? A great wind. What's the Hebrew word for wind? Ruach, spirit. Ruach, right. spirit. And what do you see in here? A spear on on the sea. And the sea would be a great sea is the water, deep water's death, the imagery yeah. of death. But go back to creation. Remember the Ruach is hovering above the waters? Sure, right. And you get to the story of Noah, the Ruach is above the waters. Right. And in other words, what God is intending us to see, something's going on here. Like there's a new creation, a baptism, something's going on here. And by the way, Jonah meaning dove above above the sea he's going to be cast come down into the sea mm-hmm. like all of this by the way what does baptism represent in the new testament romans 6 what does paul tell us that baptism represents it represents death and resurrection a death and resurrection and what will jesus equate the whole story of jonah here to his death and his resurrection death sure. and resurrection yeah, when the yeah, pharisees yeah. come to jesus and they're going to say hey give us a sign we'll follow you if you give us a sign Jesus responds, I will give this adulterous generation no sign but one, and it's the sign of Jonah, he says. For just as Jonah was in the sea for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the earth for three days and three nights. Hmm. And so Jesus is equating the story of Jonah to a death and resurrection, and right here it's already starting to give us you know, the idea of the Ruach on the sea. Hmm. Um, it's pointing you toward a pattern of that baptism of yeah. creation, the baptism of the flood, the ruach on the sea. It's it's triggering our minds to go, okay, wait, what's what's going on here? Something's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, and the reason I was kind of rushing past that was to get to the connection that I was focused on, which is what would what Jonah was doing. I think of another story from the New Testament where there was a great storm while they were in a boat, and mm-hmm. and and in the boat, Jesus was asleep. Mm-hmm. You know this the, when he called the, and in here this the the uh, the storm comes up and the peop, the sailors on the boat are afraid and Jonah he's just asleep he's mm-hmm. like he's just crashed out and the captain comes to him and shakes him awake and says you know what are you doing sleeping <laughs> you know we're all calling out to our gods maybe you've got one we don't have call out to your god you know that sort of a thing. <laughs> Um, but I find myself think I find myself thinking immediately of the story of Jesus oh, yeah. on the on the boat and the fact that when the storm came up, Jesus was sleeping in the boat. Well, the storm comes up, Jonah is sleeping in the boat. It's almost like he can I say he sort of expected the storm. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like okay, God, I know you're going to do this. That's fine. <laughs> you know, there, I've heard two different perspectives on why Jonah is sleeping. Okay. Um, yeah, I've heard the one that says, you know, that he is, he so trusts in God that he's, you know, in, at calm, just sleeping in the boat. And then the other one is he's uh, the other side or the other possibility is that he's so removed from God that it shows you how deadened his conscience is like you know he's willing he's paid his way he's running away from god he has made the decision that i'm i'm not interested in what god has to say anymore and he's it's like he's shutting his conscience down to the lord to where he's sleeping through the lord shouting at him Hmm. um and i think that's probably more likely honestly Hmm. you know i think his sleep is not because he's such a faithful prophet i think that's the wrong way to look at it i think his conscience and running away from the Lord is dead, even as the Lord is screaming at him with thunder and waves and everything else. Jonas just has no ears to hear. Huh. Interesting. Well, they shake him awake, um, and they're like, "All right, hey, you know, we've got this problem here the, on the boat. They're gonna, we're gonna cast lots, which." The casting lots is a, a way of what of, it's like they would um, mm-hmm. predict like games, a game divi- of chance, divination sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is interesting that these that these pagans, you know, they're each worshiping different gods, but they all believe in some sense of God, the gods controlling sovereignly uh, through casting lot, which is kind of like rolling dice. Okay, um, 
and saying, hey, whoever it lands on, the gods are showing us who's to blame for this storm. Now, the in Israel, there there was that that was mentioned occasionally. So, did the mm-hmm. Israelites yeah. they believed that God could control the absolutely. So they would cast lots, believing that God would control the outcome yeah. of it. When, you know? when Judas betrays Jesus and mm-hmm. he goes off and kills himself, they cast lots between two candidates that both seem like great candidates to replace him as the twelfth apostle, and they cast lots, and it lands on uh, Matthias, right. Which is so which they're still be, doing it. Which is interesting to me because it's not. It wasn't that they didn't care. It wasn't like all right, fine, you know, eeny meeny money mo kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We didn't. Ma- it, but but rather it was they believed that God was in control and sovereign over the outcome of everything, including mm-hmm. how the the lots would be cast. So, yeah. and it's not like you came to this by the way, going ah, we don't care, like you said. But if you measured everybody's credentials, if you if you you know all of your passions were at a, at a stalemate. And you were like, I don't know what to do because both of these seem equally good. Then the biblical wisdom is to toss a coin. So the next time I walk into a meeting with you and I'm carrying a pair of <laughs> dice, and if you're like, what are the dice for? And I say, in case we can't make up our mind. There you go. There we See, go. I mean, you go as a Christian, you go through the grid. You know, is, does Scripture say anything about it? You know, do your wise counsels? You know, that people have that God has put around you. Do they say anything about it? Has God wired you a particular way? Has He given you passions to choose a particular route? You know, you go through all of these things, and if at the end of walking through the grid of godly wisdom, you're still at a stalemate, hmm. flip a coin. <laughs> And so they come to the the coin flip, the coin toss, the dice roll, the lot casting, (laughs) points them to Jonah, and they come charging up to Jonah, and they say – they don't even they don't even question. It's like once the lot falls on Jonah, like okay, now we understand this. And this, by the way, is after they've already thrown the cargo that they were carrying over the side into the sea. Yeah. Uh, that's a line that we sometimes cruise right past. But you have to recognize that that tells you exactly how dire the situation was because the those sailors and the captain of that ship would have in that time then been responsible to replace the value mm-hmm. of that cargo should they have survived. So when, you know, they had already done, they were already willing to give up their their money, maybe, don't know what kind of cargo it is, maybe every money bit of money they'd ever have to preserve their own life. And, and so that's how dire they were. Then they throw the lots, they see Jonah, and they come to Jonah and they say, who are you? <laughs> but, you know, but what's your things, occupation? <laughs> one of the things that we read right past that I think kind of points to, even before we get to this point, what do they say? Hey, why are you, why, why are you sleeping? Arise, call out to your God. Do you notice what Jonah does not do? He doesn't call out to his God. He doesn't call out. No. Like his heart is hard. He's angry at God. And I think that's important because when we when we try to understand what the application of Jonah is to modern day us, you know, I I look at like you brought up the example before of what if God came to you and said, "I want you to take my word to ISIS." Um, I would I would be very hard. I'd be like, no, Lord, no. You know, first of all, that's going to get me killed, and it's not going to do any good. These people aren't going to listen to you. And frankly, I don't want good things to happen to them. Look mm-hmm. at all the bad stuff they've done. So, I think that we can put ourselves in the in the shoes of Jonah or the sandals of Jonah or whatever Jonah wore back then. We can put ourselves in his position and say, I wouldn't want to do that. Either you know, I could see myself getting that hard. Yeah, and and by the way, Jonah, the story is also meant to show us that we're we're worse than Jonah in some sense because you know Jonah is looking at a nation that is about the most reprehensible empire that has existed in uh-huh. the history of the world. And Jonah has these struggles, and then we look at Jonah and go, yeah, what a failure. <laughs> when, when the reality is, I mean, if we're really honest, we have people that are nowhere near as wicked as yeah. the Ninevites yeah. that we deal with on a daily basis that are our Ninevites. Yeah. We, don't, we don't like them. We don't want to talk to them. We're angry at them. We're brewing over them, and we don't want anything good to happen to them. We root for their destruction. Right. Um, I mean, you've, I think everybody who's within the sound of my voice has Ninevites sure. right in their backyard. 
Sure. I mean, we, you know, we have just gone through a, a contentious election that's not even over yet. We still don't wait, have answers. Wait, we had, no, we had an we election? We had an election, right. So we've had this contentious election, and people are still arguing about the outcome. But more than that, we've had divisions within the church where the, where we argue about, um, you know, what kind of pro-life are you? Are you pro-life enough? Uh, what sort of, you know, we argue about racial justice and all these things. And, and all these dividing points come in and people become so angry with one another that they just completely write the other party off. It's like, I am just not going to have anything to do with you anymore. And when the Lord comes to us and says, you know, hey, the gospel is for everyone. It's even Mm -hmm. for the other political party. It's for the other side of the racial divide. It's for the other side of the pro-life debate. It's for Mm -hmm. both sides of this. And you who know the gospel need to take that to the other side. Right. And And by the way... You can't do it when you hate them. You can't do it when you hate them. And by the way, again, going back up to verse 2 of how this whole book starts, right? the Lord's not saying, hey, Jonah, just ignore how bad they are. Just, you know, embrace everything they do, acquiesce to all their evil, you know, take it in. That's not what God calls us to do. You know, if I, if I see something that is, that's reprehensible, I'm not to condone it. I'm not, I'm not to, to embrace it for the sake of unity. But what I am to do is God's call. Now, what has God called me to do, even with people that I think are advocating or who are carrying out things that are evil? Well, the Bible tells me what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to love them. I'm supposed to pray for them. I'm supposed to root for their redemption. I'm supposed to want them to be transformed into my friends. I'm supposed to go and love them and tell them the truth with massive amounts of grace and compassion and humility that recognizes that I'm a mess, too. Um, Like, we have a common humanity, and when we start breaking people down, you know, because there's there's one side where we're so desperate for unity, and we see all the hatred and discord and division that we just can't have honest conversations anymore about where we differ. And that's not healthy either, but the root of all this, and, and what would have fixed this and what would fix it for us is humility. Humility, compassion, being able to step in someone else's shoes for a moment, right? You know, and have a conversation. You know, God's not telling Jonah, "Oh, just just go hug them and tell them that everything they do, I love, and they don't have to change, and they're perfect the way they are." No, <laughs> yeah. go call out against it. Their evil is before me. The problem with Jonah is Jonah wants to go and say, "You're wrong. I hate you. I want you destroyed," and God is going, "No, no, no." You're wrong. I love you. I want you transformed. Right. To radically different attitudes. Mm-hmm. And Jonah knows that's God's disposition toward them, and it drives him crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, He actually tells him that later. He actually, yeah. he actually complains to God about that. So when they come to Jonah and they demand his occupation and where he comes from, what's your country, what people are you, Jonah answers in exactly the wrong way to make them comfortable. <laughs> so, <laughs> he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land? Like uh, you know, the the he's telling them that the God that's in control of what's going on right now, the mm-hmm. storm and the sea and everything else. Yep, that's that's my God. Mm-hmm. And they have you know, in that pagan culture, they had divided up gods. Like they had their you know, we had a god of the harvest, god of the crops. There was probably mm-hmm. a god of the cow manure and a god of the water and the god of the <laughs> shovel that we dig up with and if your shovel breaks you didn't pray to the right god they i mean they really did it was i'm exaggerating for hopefully comedic no, effect but it uh, no was, i don't think you are they you know, broke still, it down you know even today you know you look at polytheism you know one of the the last remaining major polytheistic religions that we have is hinduism you know how many gods they have in hinduism i have no idea 300 million gods Wow! Now so when you when that's you talk one about for every occasion, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about like no kidding, like they created gods as they went. I mean, it was they had a massive number of gods. The, the god of the shovel has not blessed your god of the ditch. Has <laughs> not spoken to your right. god of the cow manure. You know, um, but so they would you know if they wanted rain, they would pray to one god. If they wanted uh, if they wanted uh, the crops to grow, they prayed to a different god. If they wanted to have children, that was a different god. And so when when Jonah tells them that his god is the god who created the sea and the dry land, 
Um, that, I think, is the last thing in the world they wanted to hear, right? <laughs> because in the next statement, they were they said they, be, they were exceedingly afraid at Jonah's answer, and they said, what is it that you've done? Because they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. I, when, I, when I read that statement, I think, what an interesting thing for Jonah to say as he booked passage on this boat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hey, listen, can you guys, uh, can I get a <laughs> ticket, one-way ticket to Tarshish? And they're like, why? Because, well, I'm, I'm running away from my God. That part of it didn't alarm them at all until they found out who his God was. So that was the other thing to me that was interesting about this culture is that in a pagan culture, if you, if you made a God angry, you could run from him because the God with the shovel, he stuck where the shovels were. And if you ran away, <laughs> then you could escape that God. So it's kind of, it's sort of interesting to me that what Jonah had disclosed to them was, yep, I'm running from my God. They're like, okay, cool. Come on. You know, that's, there's room. Uh, until they found out who his God was yeah. as they were in the midst of this storm. Yeah, it's like Psalm 139 talks about there's nowhere you can go to hide from him. There's there's absolutely nowhere you can go to hide from the Lord. And, you know, the I think one of the fascinating things about this whole exchange is you have these men who are desperate, desperately looking, desperate for any path towards salvation in this moment. Right. And Jonah, who is cold. Like, I'm not going to call it. He still hasn't called out to his God. You know, he's saying, yeah, 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 it's my God. I mean, it's almost like he's he's angry. He's like, yeah, it's it's my God. He's powerful. He controls all this stuff. And he's still not talking to God. No, he's not. <laughs> and these men are so desperate that they've already done everything they can do. They've given all yep. of their material possessions. They've thrown everything into the water, and still they're desperate because their lives are in danger. And this prophet of God, this guy, this Hebrew on your boat is kind of like, yeah, yeah, I worship <laughs> the God that's doing all of this to us. That's the one I'm running from. And then their next question, Sam, is, what shall we do to you? <laughs> like, okay, we found the problem, so what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us because it's getting worse and worse and worse? Mm. And Jonah, I mean, you just said this. Jonah doesn't say, all right, fine, I'll talk to my God. Lord, mm. you know, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. Jonah's like, fine, kill me. Just kill me. Throw me into the ocean, and it'll go, it's going to be okay for you um, because it's because of me. Jonah would rather die. Mm-hmm. Then talk to God at this point. Another thing that he doesn't do is say, "Hey, turn the boat around. I'm going to be obedient." You know, yeah. I know, I know that this is because, uh, you, you know, God is angry with me because I'm flat out disobeying Him and His call to go to Nineveh. So turn the boat around, take me back to Nineveh, and everything will be okay. No. So Jonah is saying, in a sense, what you said: I'd rather die than pray right now. Right. And I would rather die than be obedient. So, you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember as a kid, you know, my dad would put some horrific thing like lima beans on my plate and tell me, <laughs> you know, you're not leaving the table until you eat the lima beans. Is and it I'd a texture like, thing or a taste thing with you? With me, it's <laughs> a, a texture. texture. It's a texture <laughs> thing. Exactly. It I, is a pillow of ditch mud just <laughs> waiting to burst in your mouth. It's awful. I am a 60-year-old man now, and I still cannot eat lima beans. I can eat almost any other vegetable. <laughs> but what lima beans are like you know that they're like little pillows of unpleasantness in your mouth so yeah i so i know you so your dad puts lima beans would, on your plate i would have to take them like i was taking medication so i would like put them on my tongue and like gulp my milk to try to not taste them or have them burst open with all their muddy grittiness did you try putting them underneath Ugh. the edge of the plate at all? I like putting them on the table. Even it, it even the dog wouldn't take lima beans. <laughs> but as a kid, I would scrape them off the edge of my plate. I'd only tried this a couple times <laughs> and sort of tuck them under the lip of the plate without you know. This is this is how an eight year old mind works. Mom's going to pick up the plate, so your jig is up at some point. And I guess I was hoping that by that time they would have forgotten they asked me to eat them. You know, <laughs> so yeah, I, I understand. It's like you're just going to drag your feet and do everything you can. But my reaction to my dad would always be like, "I'm not doing it. Bring me my pillow. I'll sleep here tonight. I'm not eating these things." That's fine. And it, eventually, I would end up eating them. But that's where Joan is at. He's like, "I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Kill me. I am not obeying." So in this case, and and when typically when people are are kind of talking through this story the way that the way that we're doing right now, 
they kind of get from the storm to Jonah getting thrown in and the fish eats him. But there's a thing here that they that they don't stop on for a second because this is verse 13 of Jonah chapter 1. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous around against them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that Jonah says to them, just throw me in, throw me in, and it's going to... And they, they, the crew initially didn't yeah. want to do that. They were like, "No, we're not going to throw you in. We're yeah. going to. Well, we we can make this. We can we can survive this ourselves." Um, and it was almost like they were unwilling to throw him mm-hmm. over. And and I think that all they, of this were they just being kind to Jonah? Do you think it was like, like oh murder, sure you know, yeah? Okay. So they were just thinking, we don't want yeah, to these, murder you. You know, these are sympathetic guys, which is interesting. You know, remember here's Jonah, the one who's disobedient. And God is orchestrating the story to where it's the pagans who seem virtuous. Yeah. You know, they're like, you know, they're getting rid of their stuff before they get rid of a person. They're trying to negotiate. They're working hard. They're doing everything they can. And by the way, this is pointing at a gospel truth. You know, what are they trying to do? They're trying to negotiate. Like, hey, what can we figure out to get salvation? And then they go, you know, furiously rowing. Maybe if we just try hard enough, we can get salvation. And it's pointing you to something. You know, this whole story is here you have a bunch of people who don't know God whose efforts can't save them. They never can. Negotiating can't save them. What has to happen for these men to find salvation in the midst of this storm is for them to take the man of God, to pick him up, and to throw him into the sea. And through all the stuff that we've talked about before, what does the sea always represent? This represents it's, death. Yeah. It's death. And so the moment that the one man of God is thrown into this sea of death, everything goes calm for them, and they find salvation. Hmm. And so that's teaching us it's not going to come through. They can't find their salvation in negotiating. They can't find their salvation in rowing harder. Right. They find their salvation when the Lord's justice falls on the man of God. Hmm. That's good. And that's pointing us to Jesus. That is good. That's a, You know, we always talk about the idea of the, the fish and Jonah and the fish for three days, mm-hmm. because Jesus does, as being that's the connection. But really, it's even before that. It's even yeah. in this story of what happens. And here's the interesting thing to me. What it says happens next, Sam, is, therefore, they called out to the Lord, O oh, Lord, let us not perish for mm-hmm. this man's life. I, Jonah... The prophet of God wouldn't call out to the Lord to save them. He wouldn't call out to the Lord to save himself. <laughs> they, the pagans, the people, the guys on the boat, they called out to the Lord. I'm like, the first time <laughs> anybody calls on the Lord in all of this, it's the guys, it's the it's mariners, them. the sailors. Yeah. It's not the prophet. Yeah, this is this is not a good look on Jonah. It is not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the one thing that's interesting, because it's kind of a contrast here, the one noble thing that Jonah says here, I mean, he, if he was thoroughly wicked, because he's angry at God, but he's he does show compassion toward these fa- fellow sailors because, you know, he could have been like, yep, we're all going down, yeah. just tough. <laughs> but yeah, what he bad, says guys. is – No idea. The one Christ-like action he has is, I know it's because of me, and so throw me in to save you. And so all these Gentiles, these pagans, you know, when people try to make Jonah into a book where Jonah hates foreigners, like, no, he gets on a boat that's filled with foreigners, all worshiping pagan gods, to go live in a city that's as far away from Israel as he can get, filled <laughs> with pagan foreigners. Mm. He really hates the Ninevites, but that that's his geopolitical enemy. I, what you don't get out of Jonah is he's not on the boat going, oh, these dirtbags, I hate mm. them. I don't want to die for them. You know, He's willing to die for pagan Gentiles. Um, we see that right here. And so that's the one Christ-like thing you see out of Jonah, but he's doing it entirely apart from God. It's, he's, in a, he's in a massive <laughs> you know, cosmic pouting match mm. you know, with God right now. Hmm. So it says that the guys hurled, they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and then it tells you that immediately the sea calmed down. Hmm. 
that had to be just a dramatic moment. I mean, you know it's a dramatic moment because it tells you they feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And this is getting back to exactly what you were just saying, which is when they gave up their their striving, their their frantic rowing, and they threw the man of God into the to, to the sea. The man of God was killed on their behalf, figuratively. Mm-hmm. At that moment, the he's storm, as good as dead. The storm became quiet. And their reaction to that was then to worship the Lord, sacrifice, make vows. Um, I I think it's interesting just because of the fact that they it gives you that verse. It, you, it doesn't say that the sea was quiet and they went on their way, going, "Man, we dodged it." <laughs> no, their reaction was when 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 that happened, when they saw God's power demonstrated, they're like. Mm -hmm. Wow. And they stopped right then and made a sacrifice to the Lord, which I'm kind of thinking, I'm not sure what, there's a lot of different kinds of sacrifices. We don't have to necessarily assume they sacrificed one of their own, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) But they did something. They made some kind of sacrifice and they made, they made vows to God. They're like, you know, they suddenly became the faithful. One interesting thing is Tarshish, where they're, where they're headed. Yeah. Was one of the, I think the grandson of Japheth. So in the sons of Noah, Mm -hmm. you know, this city is named after one of the descendants of Noah who went into Europe. And so we know it's one of the Mediterranean Isles or somewhere on the coastline of Europe because he is a descendant of Japheth, and that's where they went. So now Jonah gets thrown into the water, and it here's the part that everybody stops and says, what? <laughs> because it says the Lord appointed a great fish, some kind of sea creature. It's a, one of the well, things that was classic is people want to argue with you about what kind of fish it could have been and whether this – there's a miraculous event <laughs> happening here. Yeah, and the the knee-jerk reaction and – and I understand it because I'm like an apologetics guy. I like evidences and stuff. Sure. But if – for the people who try to say, well, let me figure out how a guy could survive inside of a, a great fish for three days. Maybe they had an extra lung. And, you know, you hear all these crazy theories, you know, a mutated fish or something. And it's it's like, no, you're you're missing the point. If If you reach a place where you can explain away this miracle naturally, then you've missed the whole point of what God is doing here, what God is teaching us is he is a God who supernaturally, through ways that are absolutely and utterly crazy to our brains, he brings life out of certain death. There's no way that Jonah lives through stomach acids and everything else that we would think of in a great fish for three days and survives. And the, when Jesus picks up and, and he talks about Jonah – you know, he compares his death and resurrection to Jonah. Why? Because people don't die for three days and come back. They just, they don't. Right. You know, this this is a miracle. It requires the supernatural. You can't explain it away. That's the whole point. If 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 you could figure out a way to where God wasn't necessary in the story, you've missed the whole point. The point <laughs> is you need God's supernatural power to rescue you from death. Right. Nothing else will. Yeah. You know, if you take God out of the story, the fact is that this that big storms don't go away just because you throw some guy over the side of the mm-hmm. boat. You know, yeah. If God God is in this story at every level, and mm-hmm. uh, there's no way to take him to take him out of it. You know, one of my favorite things about that that you just you just hit on is this storm, and it's interesting because this storm comes and impacts these guys, right? All the the crew members and everything else. Um, but he's after Jonah. Jonah's asleep. His conscience is deadened, and God chases after him with a storm. And and there's, there, I think that's the way he works. And when I draw nearest to the Lord, it's usually when he's thrown a storm in my life, you know. And sometimes in the middle of those storms, at the beginning of those storms, in the middle of those storms, I don't want to pray. I get angry at God. I want I want to just go. Why are you doing this? And I and the Lord. It's merciful of him to send this storm. Mm-hmm. He is after his prophet, and in the process of bringing the storm to his prophet, he's going to accomplish a beautiful thing, bringing these other people to faith. Yeah, you know, he he's accomplishing in spite of Jonah all throughout the story. Jonah is recalcitrant. He's I'm not doing it the whole way through, except for when he's in the fish and repents. But anyway, like he's, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, I don't want him, I don't want him. And God is saving people all over the place in spite of him, <laughs> including the people on this boat, hmm. which are saved because of the storm. And one of my favorite things 
about this is they're terrified, right? All these guys are terrified when the storm is raging, right? Then when Jonah is thrown into the sea, it says the sea ceased from its raging. It's like snap your finger and everything went calm. And now the men aren't just afraid. Now they're they feared the Lord exceedingly. They're more afraid. (laughs) It's like, oh, my goodness, this God is powerful. Look what he can do. And they don't know what to make of it. They're in the presence of the living God who's far more powerful than a storm that had them terrified. He's the Lord of the storms. Now, what do you do with that kind of power? What do you owe that kind of God who brings salvation to you at great cost? You know, And so they're like, here, here's a sacrifice. They make vows like we're all in. They've seen who the Lord is. And you know, this story is, is meant, like you, you pointed to this earlier in Mark 4, and, and it's found in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke. When, when Jesus is sleeping in the boat, you know, the, they get in the boat to go across the Sea of Galilee, all the disciples are rowing, and this massive storm comes along. Well, what happens? You know, it's raining, the waves are coming and smashing this boat, which if you, if you ever see what a first century fisherman's boat looked like, yeah. it, you would be terrified to be it's in one of them. <laughs> not, a very, not a very seaworthy craft is what you're saying? Good Lord. I mean, it's like planks of wood just kind of randomly over top of each other. It's basically a raft is what we're saying. Okay. I wouldn't want to be in it in a massive okay. storm. Okay. And Jesus is in the stern of the boat and he's sleeping. And, and so they're freaking out. I mean, it's an identical story. So they get up, and they run to him, and they're like, hey, how, can, how in the world can you be – don't you care that if we're going to perish? And so if you're reading this story, you're recognizing, like, the Gospels are intending you to go, okay, this is, this is telling the story of Jonah again. Except rather than getting up and being thrown into the sea to bring calm to the disciples, Jesus has done nothing wrong. But even more than that, Jesus looks at the storm, and he doesn't take the role of Jonah in the story. He looks at the storm and says, peace, be still, and it ceases from its raging. So that story is meant to tell you, no, 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 no. This is one far greater than Jonah. This isn't a man. This is the God of Jonah who calmed the sea. And in that moment, by the way, and it's the same. You know, you have the disciples who are afraid massively afraid of the storm to where they're freaking out waking Jesus up but when he does that miracle when he just looks at the storm and says peace be still it says and they were filled with great fear and said to one another who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him yeah um so it's like when they when they encounter the god of the storm it's like, oh my goodness! I, like I was afraid of the storm, but you are so much more powerful than the storm, and you're calling me to give everything I have to you. Mm. How can I resist? I mean, it, there's a there's a dreadful, like a deep fear, respect of who this God is. You know, until just until you said it just then, I'd never really stopped to consider that. I knew the parallel between the stories, of course, on the on the sea and the, the storm comes up, but Jesus doesn't take the role of Jonah. No, I mean just deliberately. He will later. Do, he will later, right? But he, at that moment, what he's showing them is that he's that that the that the storm will respond to him. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and one of the interesting things about that as well, when you're comparing these two, you know, that's why I think. You know, Jonah and his imperfection and his rebellion you know, and his anger toward God, he's asleep because his conscience is dead at that moment. Jesus is asleep in the boat, not because his conscience is dead, but because he has absolute and total trust in his father. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's, not, he's not anxious about everything. You know, right. he's, he's trust. He knows what the father's mission is for him, and so he knows – everything will be okay here he sleeps through the storm Hmm. Um, and that's you know that's one of the benefits that when you do have those powerful moments of faith where you know where you just you know god is good you're in the middle of a storm and it would be really easy to to freak out right now but to step back and remember who's the lord of the storm and to trust you know and that's how you find peace even when the winds are blowing and the, the waves are raging is to remember no, no, no. I'm in the hands of the God of the storm. 
Well, we'll let that stand as our last word for this week. And uh, folks, don't worry. We've already told you Jonah survives. He's in the he's in the he's in the belly of the fish, but he will survive. <laughs> um, and we're going to pick it up next time with what happens next in the story of Jonah and the and the city of Nineveh. If you would like to correspond with us, uh, if there's something that we've talked about that you, has raised a question with you, or you just want to make a comment, let us share your thoughts with us. Um, our email address is out of water. Uh, at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. That's also where you can find all the back episodes of Out of Water, including those referred to to at the start of this podcast, where we talked about the series from Genesis, and and 70, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, however many we've done, lots and (laughs) lots and lots of additional episodes on all different kinds of topics and scriptures. Um, there's many, many things that you can work your way through a great library of content there. You can find it at riovistachurch.com slash out of water. Uh, and you can also find us on Apple podcasts, on Google play and on Spotify. Uh, we'll be back with more from the story of Jonah next week. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.